very unique combination. Mike, kind of raised as a professional musician, playing the Beatles, and uh, Carol being trained classically in piano in a nunnery. Um, and uh, God brought them together, and so they, they make a great team and really blend and balance each other out wonderfully. And so um, just been very, very blessed and encouraged by uh, their ministry uh, this morning, but uh, just this weekend, just to get to know them and their hearts and, and uh, very, very like-minded um, in, in so many ways. And, you know, it's just uh, always encouraging when you meet someone that you've never met before and, and you just start talking and, and you feel like you're talking in a mirror. You ever had that kind of conversation? Uh, and you, you see things very similarly and you communicate things, articulate things using the same words and same phrases. And, and uh, typically it's because you've kind of been reading the same book, you know? And uh, so anyway, it's just been neat to see how God has uh, saved Mike and Carol and, and had them in some tremendous Bible teaching churches Bible Church is a lot like Lakeside Bible Church, and, and uh, so they're, they come with a very common uh, faith, common mindset, common philosophy, common doctrine, and uh, it's just uh, neat to see when, uh, when you just stay faithful to the Word, you know, there's a product that's produced that's uh, very uh, like-minded, and there's a lot of unity there, uh, unity in the bond of, of peace and the, around the, the right kind of things. So anyway, make sure you guys, uh, if you haven't read that little deal on them in the bulletin, you do that. Not now, though, because it's the preaching time. <laughs> but uh, you read that, and, and uh, they're going to be around afterwards, and you can just come up and uh, say hi and introduce yourself to them. And, and uh, so uh, you just continue to pray that God will give us wisdom and direction as elders, as leaders, about uh, where the Lord would have us go in this regard, and also for Mike and Carol, because it's a big decision for them, and we need to be praying for them as well, that God would... Make it, make it obvious to all of us what his will is in this regard. And our prayer has simply been, Lord, we want what you want. We don't want what we want because that usually is not good. <laughs> but we want what you want, and we know that's the best. And so we're going to trust the Lord that he's going to clearly show us what that is. So, again, thanks, guys, for being here and ministering to us this morning. Well, I know you're already sitting down, and that's a good thing because... I'm about to ask you to turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I know this has been a long time. So of you that are kind of new the last few months to Lakeside, you're going, what's the big deal? Well, uh, we have been studying 1 Timothy. We've been going through that verse by verse. Uh, we've been doing it now for a year or two. And, and um, I always seem to get distracted on other things that come up and issues I want to address. And, and so uh, we're going to get back into our study of 1 Timothy this morning, and believe it or not, we only have about six or seven messages left. Well, you don't believe me? Okay, I'm going to make you all liars, all right? No, but uh, Lord willing, as we work through this chapter six, it's a tremendous uh, chapter, just chock full of wonderful truths uh, for our lives. And so we're going to begin this morning by looking at the first two verses, First Timothy chapter six, verse one. Paul wrote, let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. 
teach and preach these principles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word and that every week, Father, we're able to hear you speak to us as the words explained and applied from this pulpit. And Lord, thank you that uh, we've had an opportunity to kind of come up for some air uh, the last couple months, Lord, with some other issues and some other passages and, and topics. And Lord, now we want to get back in, dive back deep into First Timothy. And so I pray that as we look at this very practical passage, Lord, that your spirit would illuminate us and open up our minds and help us to understand exactly what you meant by what you wrote here and how it applies to our lives today. And I pray that you would convict those that need to be convicted this morning, that you would comfort those that need to be comforted, but most of all, that you would conform each of us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. How many of you have seen that uh, Disney movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? Is there anyone who has not seen that? Maybe that's what I should ask, right? Well, it's a classic fairy tale about a wicked queen trying to poison this beautiful princess who has taken refuge in the home of a motley crew of little men. And amidst the the humor and the romance and intrigue is a very practical lesson on working. Both Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs had a tremendous work ethic. You say, Ken, why can't you just enjoy a movie? Why do you have to analyze it, okay? Well, you think about it, and you remember this story. When Snow White stumbled upon the, the, uh, the disheveled home of the dwarfs, her first instinct was to what? To clean it up, right? She had that little homemaking instinct there, and she wanted to clean everything up. And so she acquired the help of the forest animals, and, and uh, they were content just to kind of lick the dirty plates off and, and to sweep the dust under the rug, but not Snow White, right? She, she scolded them, and uh, she... she told them that that was careless, that was half-hearted, and uh, she showed them how to do it the right way while joyfully singing that little song, what? Whistle while you work, right? In the meantime, those sloppy little dwarf dudes were off in the mine, working very hard, even though they didn't keep a nice home, they they worked really hard, they were hard workers, and every day they marched to, to work and back, happily singing that famous refrain, what? Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go, or it's home from work we go, right? And so today, these cute, and I would say corny little songs, are often associated with the, the proper attitude that a person should have toward their job, right? We talk about that. You see it on bumper stickers, you see people doing it, and, and, and it really just typifies how we should all do our work cheerfully, conscientiously and excellently um, no matter what we do. And as Christians, we have an even a greater responsibility to do that because the testimony of Jesus Christ and his church, this thing right here, is at stake in how we work. And for us, rather than whistle while we work, a more appropriate tune might be to witness while we work because in essence, that's what we're doing. And I think that the workplace is one of the simplest and most strategic opportunities that God has ordained for us to witness for him to others. And for many of us, we spend 40 or more hours a week at work. In fact, the majority of our lifetime will be spent at work. I think it's safe to say that the the primary uh, interaction or contact that most of you have with the pagan world is at work. Isn't that fair to say? I mean, that's where you're rubbing shoulders with the non-believers more than any other time. And most of the chances and opportunities you get to share your faith are going to happen at work. 
or in the context of work. There's no better place for people to see the power of a transformed life because they're with you nine to five, right? Five days, seven days a week, whatever it is that your work schedule is. And I think that's why it's so important that we learn how to practically live out our faith in the workplace in order to make the most of this unparalleled opportunity to be a powerful, effective witness for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think that's the essence of what Paul is getting at here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He shows us one of the keys to being a good witness at work. And a major part of our witness is how we relate to our boss. You're like, oh, great. We got to talk about that this morning. Yeah, that's what Paul's going to talk about. How we relate to our boss. And, and it makes a big difference whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. Paul looks at our relationship to our boss here from two different angles. In verse 1, he instructs those who work for unbelievers. And then in verse 2, he instructs those who work for believers, for Christians. And I think we we should note at the beginning here that that in these verses, Paul only focused on the responsibility of slaves or what we'll apply it to ourselves as employees. In all the other passages that, that he wrote about work, he always addressed slaves and masters or employees and employers. Um, Let's just remind ourselves of those passages just quickly. Turn back to Colossians 3. And I think it'd just be good to just to refresh our memory of of the main passages where Paul addresses this issue of work. And it's it's the first one is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Colossians 3, 22, Paul writes, Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And then chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, on the other hand, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. In other words, don't abuse your authority as the boss. Uh, Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This is the other main passage where Paul addresses this issue of work and addresses both slaves and masters. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Ephesians 6, verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And now he turns his, his focus to the masters. He says, masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Again, don't remember you're under authority as well. God's authority, he's your master, and you need to treat your employees and treat your slaves like he treats you. So we see that both slaves and masters have a God-given responsibility to treat each other in, in a certain way. And apparently, some of the believers in the Ephesian church were not treating their bosses or their masters with the proper honor and respect that was due to them. And that's why Paul 
told Timothy to teach these principles to the Ephesians and urge them to apply them to the way they related to their bosses. Look at verse, the end of verse 2. He says, teach and preach these principles. Uh, we know this is, this is corrective instruction because he already, we just read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, right? He already explained to them, to the slaves, how they should work as unto the Lord. And so they had already received instruction about a proper Christian work ethic, and yet they had missed it, or they had violated it, or, or had fallen short of it. And so now this is corrective instruction that Paul is giving them in 1 Timothy. Again, Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus, overseeing all the changes that need to take place in that church. Well, Paul also here, in these two verses, included the reasons, really, that, that should compel us to put these principles into practice. Why is it so important that we treat our boss in a certain way? Well, ultimately, he says the testimony of God and his church are at stake. And so let's look this morning. If you're taking notes, we're going to have two points. Number one is the unbelieving bosses, okay? The unbelieving bosses. And again, each verse, Paul tells us how we should treat our boss, and then he tells us why we should treat him that way, okay? So under unbelieving bosses, the first question we need to answer is, how do we need to treat them? And we need to treat them with honor. Look what it says. He says, let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all what? Honor. Now, it's clear that, that Paul is addressing those who are in bondage to slavery. Okay, And I think it's important that we understand that uh, in those days when Paul was writing in the first century Roman Empire, there were between 50 to 60 million slaves. I mean, that's like one-third of the population. One out of every three people was a slave. That's a lot of slaves. And, and slavery was just woven into the very fabric of the society and it affected virtually everything and everyone. And the entire economic system depended on slavery. And unlike the racial slavery that, that we're accustomed to, uh, when we think about that which was practiced in our own country before the Civil War. Okay, slavery in those days, in, in, in the Roman era, was considered culturally acceptable at the time. There was not a bunch of warring going on about whether it was ethical or not. It was just a commonly accepted deal in the culture. And generally speaking, Roman slavery was far more humane and civilized than what we're used to studying in, 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 in uh, American history uh, that erupted in a Civil War. Now, granted, there were abuses and there were injustices and masters uh, at times treated their slaves harshly and unjustly and uh, considered them no better than cattle. Uh, I think that's a reference there when he says under the yoke. Uh, you understand a yoke, right? Uh, where oxen fit into a yoke and, and, and there was a mentality in those days that, that, a, that a slave was nothing more than, a, than, a, than like a cow, a piece of machinery, something, a piece of property to help you get your work done. And so there was that mentality there. But for the most part, slaves were treated as friends and they were treated as family members. I mean, that's why when you look at Colossians uh, 3 uh, and Ephesians 6, that slaves and masters are addressed in what context? The context of the family, right? Husbands love your uh, wives, submit your husbands. Husbands love your wives. Children obey your parents. Fathers don't exasperate your children. And then slaves and masters. Well, why is it? That's the kind of thing. Whoa, why, why is it all together? Because... Slavery was kind of part of a lot of the homes, that there was usually a slave living in the home, helping out, serving uh, in that capacity. And so 
we, I think we can say that the relationship then shared between slaves and, and masters back then was very similar to the relationship between employees and employers today. And that's why I, I feel very comfortable and confident to apply this passage to our modern day work relationships. And so when it says, let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, I think that word masters can be applied to bosses um, or teachers, for those of you that are in school, uh, college, uh, your professors, uh, your coaches, for those of you that are in athletics, uh, your husband's wives, uh, I think this also applies as well, or to, to parents for you children. Uh, basically, I think that term master can be applied to how we treat anyone who's an authority over us or anyone that we do work for. So that would be work, work. You know, you go to work, hi-ho, hi-ho, off to work we go, that kind of work. Uh, talking about school work, uh, class work, homework, workout work. If you're out on the field with your coach or you're on the basketball court or on the baseball field, you're, you're working for your coach. That's, that's work or housework, wives or children, the chores that you can uh, do around the house that your parents ask you to do. So, so these are, I think, all applicable to what Paul is saying here. So he says, let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Notice he doesn't give any adjectives qualifying the kind of master or boss or teacher or coach or husband or parent that you have. He doesn't say that all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their really wonderful masters, the the great guys. You know, there's these really understanding, uh, you know, nice masters. He doesn't say that. Paul is not just referring to nice masters, but even to the bad ones. Um, it doesn't matter whether or not your master is a great guy or he's kind, he's fair, he's generous, he's thoughtful, he's patient, he's understanding and, and, and worthy of honor and respect. I mean, does anybody work for somebody like that or have a relationship with somebody? Praise God, right? That's, that's typically easier to work for someone like that, isn't it? Or to, or to do work or serve that person. But Paul is saying, even if this guy's brutal, I mean, he's a brutal boss. I mean, he's got a, he's got a bad temper, He's nasty, he's partial, shows preference to different workers, he's insensitive, he's selfish, he's demanding, he's unreasonable, he's corrupt, he's immoral, he's ungodly, he's, he's just plain not even worthy, he's just an unrespectable guy. I mean, he's disobedient to the word, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'm sure there's some of you that are serving and working for people like that. Well, he says it doesn't matter, all that matters is that he's your master, and if he's your master, if he's your boss, if he's your, the person that God has placed, sovereignly placed over you, then you need to treat them, regard them as worthy of all honor. In other words, treat them with respect. And this is the same idea that Paul has been developing back in chapter 5. If you remember, I know it's been a while, but if you just kind of go back there to chapter 5 in verse 3, Paul is on this honor kick here in chapter 5. And the first people he addresses that need to be honored are who? Widows, right? We talked about that a couple weeks on widows. He says, honor widows who are widows indeed and, and treat them with a certain kind of respect. He, he goes on, the next group of people that he says are worthy of honor are who? Verse 17. Who are they? Elders, right? 
let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so he's got this theme going here of, of honoring certain types of people. And, he, and he, so he's kind of picking out certain people that we need to honor and respect. He talked about widows, he talked about elders, and now he turns to our masters and says we need to, we need to honor them. And so really, don't let chapter 6, or that chapter break, you know, confuse you there, because he's really just continuing his flow of thought here with this whole idea of who we need to honor in our lives. Turn back to Romans chapter 13 for a moment. And I think this is an important passage that we need to look at when it comes to submitting and honoring and respecting authority. Because we have a way in our sinful hearts to uh, justify uh, disrespecting and dishonoring and disobeying authority, particularly when it fails. We think that's justification. I don't need to submit to that guy. I don't need to, I don't need to respect that person because they failed. They're not worthy to be followed. They're not worthy to be submitted to or respected. Well, not according to Romans 13, verse 1. Romans 13, 1, Paul says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Talking about government here, but the principle applies all the way across the board. For there is no authority except from who? God. And those who exist are established by God. In other words, there is no one on this planet who's in a position of authority who hasn't been sovereignly placed there by God. That includes your boss, that includes your, your coach, that includes your teachers, your professors, that includes your, your husbands, that includes your, your, your whoever is in authority over you. Okay, your pastors, your elders. Okay, now notice this, verse 2. Because, therefore, he says, therefore, in other words, based on that knowledge that, that God has established every authority, and that includes good authority and bad authority. Authority that succeeds and authority that fails. Therefore, he says, he resists authority has opposed who? God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. In other words, if you set yourself up against an authority in your life, whoever it may be, you're ultimately setting yourself up against God. So there's no excuse not to submit to that authority, obviously, unless they tell you to sin, right? And then the Bible says you need to obey God rather than men. But as you go through this passage, look down at verse 7. And this is kind of the crescendo of this passage. I won't take time to read the rest. But he says, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and then what's the last phrase? Honor to whom honor. In other words, our bosses, our authorities, are worthy of honor. And we need to give that to them. It's due them. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a, a practical illustration of this principle. Okay, we're going to see this principle in Romans 13 uh, fleshed out in the lives of some Christians who are being persecuted by, uh, by very harsh unjust, unfair, unreasonable leadership. In fact, the, the context here, the historical context of 1 Peter is these Christians were living in the era of Nero. You remember Nero, right? The Caesar who was, who, for, for funsies, he would just uh, impale Christians on stakes and, and, and put them in a garden and light them on fire, and that would light up his garden. I mean, if there was ever an authority that failed, right, that was disrespectable and, and not worthy to be honored, and, and submitted to, it would be him. And in that very context, uh, Peter writes to the Christians who have been scattered all over the place and, and are suffering under this, this persecution. In verse 13, this is 1 Peter 2, 13. 
He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether to king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So he's, he's saying this, submit to whoever, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Everyone that God's put in authority over you, you submit to him. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, you'll be a good witness, a good testimony to them. Even though they try to slander you, they will have nothing bad to say about you. You'll just, you'll just, you'll just shut them up because, because you have such integrity and honor. Verse 16, he says, act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Ultimately, we're submitting to who? God, right? In Christ. They're not, not really submitting to that person, that boss or, or that husband or that coach or that professor or that whatever, that parent. We're ultimately submitting to Christ. And he says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then notice what he says. That's kind of setting up the principle. Look at now he applies it to servants. He says, okay, now servants, let me talk to you for a second. Verse 18, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are what? Are harsh and unreasonable, per, literally perverse. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. In other words, you're saying, yeah, you don't know my boss though. You don't know the guy I work for. I mean, this guy's a knucklehead. I mean, he's unjust, he's unfair, he's unreasonable, he's perverted. Um, you're telling me I need to submit to him? I'm saying, yeah, you do. Because that's what the Bible says. You know, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. He is everything you think he is, everything you say he is. That's great, okay, no problem. But that doesn't let you off the hook. Notice what he says in verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? In other words, if you sin and you're harshly treated, you deserve it. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's our example. That's our model. If there was anyone, no one was treated more unjustly and unreasonably and more harshly and unfairly than Jesus Christ. And he's left an example for us to follow in his steps. And so if you're in a situation where you find yourself being treated in a certain way by an ungodly person over you, then guess what? You've got a great opportunity to be like Jesus. I mean, you're in a, you're in a privileged position because you've got to You've got to put into practice here what Peter's talking about. And you have an opportunity. That is an opportunity for tremendous growth and sanctification as you seek to follow the example of your Lord and Savior who even though he was sinned against, he never sinned back. Even though he was talked down about, he was gossiped about, he was slandered about, he never did it back. Even though he was threatened, he never threatened back, he never sought revenge, but he kept what? and trusting himself to him who judges righteously. In other words, you understand, I serve a higher boss, right? My master uh, is not you, it's, it's someone else. And, and when it all is said and done, you know, it's not about a paycheck. You know, it's about standing before him and getting the reward that he's going to offer me. And so he knows. And what comes around goes around, and, and, and he's going to dish out what needs to be dished out in his proper time and his proper way. Well, practically, how, how do we show respect and honor 
for our masters. I was thinking about this because we're back here now in, in, in 1 Timothy 6, and he's saying, hey, you know, regard your masters as worthy of all honor. How, how do we practically show respect and honor our masters? Let me give you just a, a quick little list, okay? A practical way you can do that. Number one, you need to submit to them and obey them as you would Christ, okay? You need to, you need to submit to them and obey them as you would Christ. In other words, do what they tell you to do right away and with the right attitude, okay? Sound familiar? That's kind of what you tell your kids, right? You need to obey right away with the right attitude. It's the same thing for you as an adult, right? Your boss tells you to do something, you do it, you say, yes, sir, you do it right away with the right attitude. It's a, that's why I, 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 I try to emphasize with my children so much is, guys, this is not about daddy being mean and harsh and, you know, you submit, submit to me because I'm daddy. Listen, I'm trying to build in your heart a perspective for life because you're going to stand, you're going to be under some, 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 some boss guy at McDonald's someday and he's going to go tell you to get the french fries out of the freezer and if you don't know how to say yes, sir, and go do it right away and come back, you're not going to be working at McDonald's very long. So it, it, there's, a, there's a perspective that, that I think that one of the number one principles that children need to learn is submission to authority. Because they're going to be under authority the rest of their lives, aren't we? Right? So they need to learn to submit to authority. And if they can learn it, it kind of the parent thing and the parent-kid thing is a training ground for life. And so as they go out from under your authority, they're going to go out underneath somebody else's authority. Um, and so they need to learn how to submit and obey as, as if they were submitting and obeying to Jesus Christ. Secondly, you need to work hard for them even when they're not looking. You need to work hard for your boss even when they're not looking. For those of you that have played sports uh, or maybe just PE class is good enough, but do you remember how that was when you're out there on the field and, and uh, you know, the, the worst thing was leg lifts for me. I hated those. You know, you got to say it, lay out there and lift your legs up. And they made the, and the coach is walking around and he's, and you all got to lift your legs up, you know, five inches off the ground and hold it there forever, right? And they're trying to big, build up your abs and all this kind of stuff. And so what would you do, right? The coach is, coach is coming this way and you got your legs up and you're straight. Oh yeah, man, coach, look at me, man, I'm doing it. Yeah. And then he turns around and walks this way and you put your legs down and you kind of wait for him to turn around and so he turns around, you're like, oh, look at my legs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Or the push-ups, right? The, the PE teacher saw hey, everybody doing push-ups. And, 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 and as soon as he turns around, you're like on the ground looking at him. As soon as he turns around, <laughs> right? That's not honoring to your boss if you only work hard while he's looking. So work hard all the time, even when he's not looking, because ultimately, who's looking? God. And you're ultimately serving him anyway. Number three, be genuine, sincere, honest, and trustworthy. Be genuine, sincere, honest, and trustworthy. In other words, do what you say and say what you mean, okay? Do what you say and say what you mean. Don't, don't, don't do the, you know, say one thing and really mean another. He's, do what you say and say what you mean. Speak truth. Speak the truth in love. Put aside falsehood. Be honest. Number four, patiently and quietly endure any mistreatment by them. That's what we just read about in, in 1 Peter, right? Patiently and quietly, keep your mouth closed. Uh, you may not say anything to the boss, but you might go over to the water cooler and start trashing the boss or whining and fussing because of what the boss has done or whatever. No, you just keep your mouth shut. You don't say anything to the boss. You don't say anything to anybody else. Patiently and quietly endure any mistreatment by him. And then finally, number five, you need to earn the reputation of being their best employee. 
You need to make it your goal to, to earn the reputation of being their best employee, their best student, the best student in class. The, 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 I didn't say smartest, okay? I said the best. But I mean the, the hardest working. The, you need to be the best team member, the best player on the team in that coach's mind. Um, the most diligent, the most loyal, the most dependable person. Uh, when I was playing soccer in high school, I had to make up for a lack of talent with a lot of hustle. And, and uh, so, you know, I wasn't hugely gifted or talented, but I just happened to be on a position on the field, sweeper, the last guy on the field before the goal, that had an opportunity to get in the way of a lot of plays. And so I was always trying to just hustle around, throw my body around and, and, and fall on the ball and do all this kind of stuff. And all these tricky, you know, guys were coming down doing all the little ball tricks and I'm going, whoa, I just kind of fall on them. You know, but, but I, was, I was hustling, and, and when we had practice, I remember, you know, there were some guys that were just way better. They were way faster, way more talented guys. And uh, so we'd line up for the, at the end of the practice, you know, and we'd have to do wind sprints, you know. And so a lot of those, you know, prima donna guys, you know, were just kind of, you know. And here I am. I'm just scrapping to stay alive in this whole deal, you know, and I'm just, you know, running. To get, and, and the coach, I remember one, one practice, the coach called me out and said, hey, if half of you guys were running as hard as Ramey was, you know, we might do, be winning more games, you know. And, of course, all the guys were like, you idiot, jerk face, you know. <laughs> Why couldn't you just kind of go with the status quo, man? You know, you'd be out there being Mr. Rudy, you know. And, and uh, anyway, you guys seen that? It's a good movie, Rudy. But, but that's, that's the point, that you need to be known as the most loyal. You may not be the best, okay? You may not have a whole lot of talent. You may not be the smartest, but you need to be the most loyal, the most diligent, the most dependable. And you know, the, the cool thing is, when you, when you look at the history of the church, uh, Christian slaves usually commanded a higher price on the slave market than slaves who weren't Christians. Uh, if, you, if you look at that, and it wasn't uncommon that, that if an owner found out, a slave owner found out as they were standing there kind of bidding for the different slaves, uh, found out that a certain slave was a Christian, he was willing to pay more money for that particular slave because he knew he would be served better by him than he would a, an unbeliever. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think we can say the same today, at least based on the conversations I've had with different employ, employers, Christian guys I know, even un, non-Christians, uh, frankly. Um, I've had people tell me that they would rather do business with unbelievers any day than Christians because they can't trust Christians. Um, they, they've been burned or disappointed by Christians too many times. And so they just soon hire a pagan because, you know what? Christians have a reputation of being lousy workers. They're, they're sloughing off, they're lazy, whatever. And so uh, to me, that's a terrible, terrible testimony for Jesus Christ. And that brings us to that second part of this first point about unbelieving bosses. Is, is we, we, he shows us how we're supposed to work uh, with honor, but now he tells us why. That little so that, there in verse 1. So that, that's a purpose clause. He's given us a reason for the command to honor our boss. And that is because the testimony of God and his word are at stake. He says, so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. In other words, we want to disgrace God. We don't want to dishonor God or his word. That's that word doctrine. If you remember when we started 1 Timothy, it's everywhere. Everywhere you turn. Chapter 1, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 16, chapter 5, verse 17, this word didaskalia 
It's, it's this word doctrine that just is consuming to Paul in this letter. And it's, it's talking about the teaching of God's word. And he says, you, we need to work in such a way and we need to honor our boss in such a way that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. The word in the Greek there is where we get the, the English word blasphemy. In other words, that, that, the, that God and his word would not be blasphemed. And that's pretty strong language, isn't it? That in, in many ways, if, if you're a, a shoddy worker, a lazy worker, a lousy worker, you're, 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 being, uh, you're causing someone to commit blasphemy. Um, you're tempting them, I should say, maybe. You're a temptation to them to, to, to blaspheme God, to, to, to slander him, to talk bad about him. Um, you know, the same principle applies to elders back in chapter 3, verse 7. He says he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In other words, an elder better have a good reputation outside the walls of the church, in the community, so it doesn't make the church look bad. Um, same thing with widows, 1 Timothy 5.14. He says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for what? For reproach, to, to tear down the church and to talk down about the church. L- look over to uh, Titus. Just flip over to the next book here. 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 2, verse 9. This is great. Another shot at the slaves here and how their testimony is vital to what they do. Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, in other words, you know, uh, embezzling, but showing all good faith. Why? That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. In other words, the way we work adorns the doctrine of our Savior in every respect. That adorning means making something look good. It's like a gal putting on a pretty necklace or putting on jewelry. It adorns them. It makes them look more attractive. And so the way we work either makes God look more attractive or less attractive. Either makes Christianity look prettier or uglier. Depends on how you work. And see, pagan people develop an opinion about God and his word by how his people live their lives, specifically how we work. And so our attitude and performance at work either brings praise and honor to God or causes people to look down on him and mock him. I mean, bottom line is being a bad worker makes God look bad. Makes Christ look bad. If you're a bad worker, you say, yeah, I'm a Christian and you work bad. It makes God look bad. When we're not honest, when we don't follow through, we don't keep our word, we do shoddy work, people will conclude that Christians are a sorry lot that we're just a bunch of bozos and, and it makes Christianity look like a big joke. They don't want anything to do with, I mean, if that's what Christianity is about, I don't want anything, anything to do with it. And yet, on the other side, the harder we work, the better we make Christ look. The better quality of our work, the brighter our witness for Christ shines. We all know uh, Matthew five sixteen. What does it say? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I, I think it's okay to say, let's think about that from a different perspective. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good work. Okay, cut off the S there for a second. Because that's the essence of what he's saying. They may see your good work and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so the driving motivation for us at work 
or at school or at practice or at home should be upholding the reputation of God and his word. And that makes hi-ho, hi-ho, off to work we go, gives a lot more meaning, doesn't it? Because we're going off to be a testimony for Jesus Christ and the word of God. And so I ask you this morning, are you being a good advertisement for God or a bad one by the way you work? Are you being a good advertisement for God? You making God look good or are you making him look, look, making him look bad? Well, that's how we should treat unbelieving bosses. Now let's look quickly at, at how we're supposed to treat believing bosses. Okay, and again, back in 1 Timothy 6, 2, Paul tells us how we should treat believers and why we should treat them that way. And he tells us how we should treat them. We should treat them with even more honor. Not just honor, but even more honor. He says, let those who are believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them, what? All the more. Now, this is interesting. Uh, I think, historically, what the rub here is. Because you've got to ask yourself, well, what's the big deal? Why, why is there this... Paul have to address believers. Do you think that would be an issue? Well, uh, in, in those days, uh, when Paul was writing, masters and slaves under normal conditions had very little, if any, association apart from their work relationship. Okay? Um, but the gospel changed all that. I mean, slaves and masters who had embraced the gospel, they'd repented of their sins, they'd committed their life to follow and obey Jesus Christ, found themselves thrust together in this new organism called the church. And so, uh, I think it's safe to assume, based on Ephesians 6, 5, when Paul had to address the slave thing in Ephesians, that a large portion of the congregation in Ephesus was made up of masters and slaves who had come to Christ. And here they were, master, slave, sitting side by side to each other, uh, worshiping together, listening to apostles' teaching together, sharing communion together, praying together, fellowshiping together, serving side by side together, now, that was a very interesting dynamic, wasn't it? Totally countercultural. And so it, it obviously created some tensions and some challenges and problems that the apostles had to address um, on several occasions, and right here is one of those examples. Apparently, I think what was going on here is that some of the slaves who had been saved were confused about their newfound freedom in Christ when it came to the relationship with their masters. You guys remember Galatians 3.28? What did Paul clearly taught? That there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for, all, for you are all one in Christ. Okay? So, in other words, every Christian is on the same spiritual level, right? They're equals in the sight of Christ. And so naturally, anyone who was a slave could have easily misinterpreted this to mean that their masters were no better than they were and they no longer had a right to rule over them or tell them what to do. And so they may have wrongly assumed that if their master was really spiritual and really understood the teaching of the Apostle Paul, that they would release them or at least they ex could expect some kind of special perks or privileges because they were kind of in now. And Paul wanted these, these Christian slaves to understand that even though their spiritual position had changed, that their social position hadn't. And while their standing in Christ had been altered, their standing in society hadn't. Their, their social status had remained the same, and consequently they needed to submit to and serve their masters. In fact, you remember in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul's the basic principle of that passage was 
whatever station you find yourself in, whatever condition you find yourself in when you get saved, when you become a Christian, you need to stay in that situation. If you're married to an unbeliever and you get saved, don't say, well, I need to get divorced now because he's not a Christian. No, you stay in that situation. Same thing with slaves. He said, let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you're able to also become free, rather do that. For he was called in the Lord while a slave as the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he was called while free as Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. He said, hey, listen, if, you, if you're a slave and you get saved, it's all right. You're a slave. Try to get, if you can get free, great. But if not, don't worry. You're still under bondage because you're a slave of Christ now. So it doesn't matter. Either way, you're a slave. So stay in that condition and, and, and recognize your new heart condition. Okay? So all that to say, he says, let those who are believers who have believers as their masters, not be disrespectful to them. Okay, that's what was going on. That that phrase literally means to think down on. Remember in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul told Timothy, let no one what? Look down on your youthfulness, right? Be an example. Same word there, okay? So some of the slaves were apparently looking down on their masters and they were thinking less of them because they hadn't set them free. Or they assumed that, that because their masters were fellow Christians, some, somehow that meant they didn't have to work as hard. They kind of just slough off and, and, you know, he's a Christian. My witness isn't that critical. He's already saved. I can loaf around, be lazy. He won't mind. He doesn't care. I can get by with doing as little as possible. Well, I'll just say this. If you work for a Christian, you need to guard yourself against this subtle mentality. And I'm just assuming that if it's in Scripture... God knew that that was going to be a temptation of every Christian is to kind of have this, this just be tempted to, to take advantage of your boss if they're a believer, just, just because they're a Christian. And so it's, it's very easy to fall into that sinful tendency to do that. And so you might justify in your mind that, you know, hey, I'm doing ministry at work. He's a Christian. He understands. So if I use my time to make some ministry phone calls or this or that, and, and you know, they'll understand, you know, hey, God expects you to give that guy an honest day's wage. Just because you're all in the family of God doesn't mean you can do less than your best. In fact, Paul's point here is the exact opposite. He says, because you're brothers, you should strive even harder to work your very best, to give them your very best. That's what he's saying here. He says, but let them serve all the more because those who partake of these benefits are believers. They're believers. They're brothers in Christ. We need to work even harder. We need to go the extra mile. You guys remember Galatians 6.10? So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, but what? Especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So we need to go the extra, we need to work hard for anybody, but especially for those who are part of the family of God. And that's the why here. Notice what he says, because. Okay, another purpose clause, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. In other words, the testimony of the church is at stake. Okay, we said, first of all, you need to treat uh, an unbeliever a certain way and honor him because the t- testimony of Christ is at stake, of God and his word is at stake. But now the testimony of the church is at stake. You say, what are you talking about? Well, hang in here. Watch this. He says, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and what? Beloved. That's a key word in this passage. You might want to underline that or circle it. 
In other words, he's saying, hey, they're benefiting from your service. The, the one who is benefiting from your labor is a fellow Christian. So you, you, you should want to help them be more productive as possible. You want to be a tremendous blessing to them because of your brother or sister in Christ. That, that word beloved there is agape toy, which is from what Greek word we all know? Agape, right? Which is God's kind of love. That, that, that unconditional sacrificial commitment to serve someone. That's what he's talking about here, that, that the reason why you want to work even harder and serve them all the more is because you love them unconditionally and sacrificially and you're, you're committed to serve them. And when you, when you love someone, you want to serve them. And you should, you should work even harder for a Christian because you love them with a greater love than you love somebody who's not a Christian. And so your, your, your great love should motivate you to respect them and serve them even more. And so this is, I think this is neat. When, when you're working for a Christian, your driving motivation should not be fear, which oftentimes is that relationship, isn't it? You're serving out of fear. Or even to get a paycheck or to make a living, but your driving motivation should be serving your boss out of love because you love that guy. And according to Jesus Christ, that is the distinguishing mark of what? The church of brothers and sisters that we love each other. John 13, John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are disciples, my disciples, if you what? Have love for one another. They will know we are Christians by our love. Galatians 5 13 and 14, for you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. I think this applies to the slavery issue in some ways. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In this statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, serve each other like you would want others to serve you. Okay? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, that, that was always my philosophy of, of working when I was an intern, serving under other, other pastors. You know, my, my work ethic, my thinking there was that I wanted to work for that guy like I would want someone to work for me someday. That I would want to be loyal and faithful so that others would be loyal and faithful. And you know what? God's been gracious because what comes around goes around or goes around comes around, however you say it. Uh, because God has blessed me to be able to have people that I work with now that are very loyal and very faithful. Turn over to Philemon, and we'll close with this. You guys know the story of Philemon. It's a great illustration uh, of, the, of the transforming power of the gospel. Philemon was, uh, was the, the man who, who uh, had, um, had the church of Colossae in his home. And uh, he had had a slave named Onesimus who had run off to Rome and tried to, to hide in the, 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 the Roman city. He thought he could get away with it. Well, somehow he meets... Paul, Paul witnesses to him, he gets saved. And guess what Paul says? Guess what, partner? You need to go back and, and, and repent and make restitution and go back and submit to your, your, your master because you're still a slave. And so Philemon is, is, is a letter that Paul wrote to, uh, and sent with Onesimus to Philemon and appealing to Onesimus according to love. Look at verse 8. 
Philemon, verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that, which is proper, and others say, hey, I'm, I'm an apostle. I could tell you this is what you need to do, Philemon, but I'm not going to do that. Why? He says, because um, of love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. Since I'm such a person as Paul, the age, and now also prisoner of Christ Jesus, I'm a prisoner myself. I appeal to you for my child whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I've sent him back to you in person that is sending you my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, but that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. Now watch this. For perhaps he is was for this reason parted from you for a while that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? See, this is a two-way street because there, there's the, the slave that's supposed to view his master as his brother, but now he's appealing, and, and, and that's out of love because you love him so much, and now he's appealing to a master, a Christian master, saying you need to view that guy not as your slave anymore, but as your brother. Guess what happened to slavery after a few years of Christianity infusing throughout the Roman culture? Guess what happened to it? Went away. <laughs> Disappeared. Paul didn't have to get up and say, slavery is a wicked evil. We need to destroy everyone who's a slave and try to destroy slavery. He didn't have to do that. He just taught slaves and masters how to live as Christians, how to live like Christ lived. And the evil institution of slavery dissipated itself. Pretty amazing what can happen when we as Christians work like Christians. Lots of power things, lots of transformation can take place at your work. And so let me ask you just a closing question here. Does the way you serve your believing boss model the deep love and commitment shared between brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, are you a good witness of the church and what the church is supposed to be like at your work if you're serving a Christian? Do your unbelieving coworkers know that you're a Christian by your labor of love for your boss? In other words, they see you laboring for that guy more than they are, and it's not because, you know, you, you, you want to make more money. It's because you just love them more than they do. Does, does it make the church of Jesus Christ look attractive? In other words, I think going, man, I, I don't understand that relationship there, but that's, that's awesome. That's really cool, and I, I don't understand that. I've never experienced that, and I want to. And that draws people to Christ. You might be sitting here this morning, and you're not a Christian. You know, and, and you've seen that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You've seen that dynamic at your work, and you really can never put your finger on it and say, what's going on there? There's something different between, in that relationship between that guy and his boss. And it's because... There's a love and commitment for each other that they have because Christ lives in both of them. And I would appeal to you that you need to come to Christ this morning so that you can experience that, the love of Christ in your own life and towards others that you live with. Well, our attitude and habits regarding work speak volumes about our commitment to Christ, especially how we treat our boss. So let's do a good job, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for just real practical teaching this morning from your word, just right where we're at. I mean, this is something we deal with every day. We're gonna, we're gonna go off somewhere tomorrow 
whether it's work or school or, or home or um, out on the athletic field, Lord, and we're going to be submitting to someone and serving someone. And I pray that we do it with all honor. If they're unbelievers, Father, that our testimony would just be so convicting and so challenging that it would, it would woo them to Christ. And Lord, if we're, we're, we're been called by you to serve a fellow believer, that we would do it even more even work even harder. And that that love relationship that we share with them would just be a beautiful reflection to the unbelievers around us in our workplace or wherever we're at, Lord, uh, and that would draw them to Christ as well. And so help us to be faithful Christians who uh, are known by our love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.